Good morning. We're picking it back up in Genesis this morning in our study, Genesis, God and Man. As you know, we've been looking at the interaction of God and man and how uh, in my small and unworthy uh, estimation, uh, just how intimate God is with his people and how he reaches them where they are uh, and finds them no matter where they are, uh, that they're never out of his sight. And this morning we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 28. And the title of the message is, The Lord Stood Above It. The Lord Stood Above It. Previously we saw Jacob and Esau, they were at odds over a birthright and a bowl of stew. Uh, We saw that come to a head, a culmination. Last week uh, we saw Isaac about to bless Esau. And we remember that Rebekah overheard this plan. And so she quickly schemed with Jacob to get some food, put on some of his brother's clothes and cover his hands in goatskin and go trick his dad into giving him the blessing. Uh, We saw that the birthright was given. I mean, the blessing was given. And then there was a sort of a pity party blessing on Esau as he cried and wailed over losing his birthright, which he had treated as nothing before. We remember that Esau wanted to comfort himself or comforted himself with thoughts of fratricide where the only thing that was going to quench his anger and keep him from going off the rails, even though he was off the rails, uh, was waiting for his father to die and thinking about killing his brother afterwards. And even after all this, his mom, Rebecca, Um, yeah, Rebecca, I saw Rachel in the heading. I'm like, did I get, am I messing these names up too? Uh, Rebecca, uh, you know what she was worried about? Who Jacob was going to marry. Not this whole family thing. Not them being torn apart. She said, go away for a couple days and when he calms down, you'll be all right. But he wouldn't calm down in a couple of days. As we get started this morning, a few questions. Where have you come from? Not where have you come from? Where did you go? Not as your name, Cotton Eye Joe. Uh, my friend just listens to that song all the time. So annoying. <laughs> but uh, where have you come from, really, in life? Family, your residence, personally. Maybe, like us, you lived on one side of the country and you moved to another. Maybe you've always lived in the same place. I think that there's something so very special about that thing about. Uh, my wife always growing up in the same house uh, until she married me. Now she's moved a million and a half times. Personally, where have you come from? You know, you look back at old pictures. Sometimes uh, if you have a smartphone or social media, they'll give you a year in review or they'll show you pictures from a couple years ago in this day. You think about what was going on then and what was what's going on now. Uh, Maybe you were a better person in your estimation beforehand. Maybe you weren't. Where have you come from? Where are you going in life or today? Maybe you have plans for later today. Uh, I know I do for take my daughter out bike riding again a little bit. But where are you going in life? And at least where do you think you're going? Sometimes we have so many plans about what we think we're going to do. And then you turn around and it's your midlife crisis. And it's not what you expected. Are you stuck somewhere in life? Is there something overshadowing you? Is there something you can't get away from? Maybe you're trying to run away from it. Or maybe you're returning from that season of struggle and solitude. 
And Lord, this morning we pray that God, you would you would be with us and you would show us how you stand over all these things. And God, we ask that you would fill us and speak to us through your word this morning. And thank you for uh, those here and for those who listen online. And uh, God, we pray that you would bless all those who are spending time in your word this morning, your people and your church at large. I ask God that you come back soon. But God, while we're here, help us be open to you and to your plan and your will. We love you, God. Have your way. Bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis chapter 28. And you'd look at it and you go, oh, there's only 22 verses. It'll be a real short message this morning. I have no guarantees of that. Um, let's pick it up. The first nine verses together in Genesis chapter 28. It says, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise and go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. And so Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, and Esau. And Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take himself a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padan Aram. And also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. And so Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife, in addition to the wives he had. We see that the first charge here, if we remember after last chapter, Rebecca was so worried about who Jacob was going to marry uh, after she saw the, the girls that Esau brought home. And so Isaac, as he sends him away, charges him, get a wife, but get her in the right place. Go back to your mother's homeland. You know, uh, when my dad found a wife for me, he sent them back there and look how great your mom is. So go find someone back from your mother's side, from uh, that part of the land. Um, and how important it is that, like we talked about previously, that we find a wife or even find friends in the right places, that they are the type of people that we'd want to bring home to mom and dad. And the type of people that would bring us home to our mom, our, our mom and dad, our dad in heaven, really. But the real blessing we see, you know, we were so caught up in the last chapter about what blessing was going to be given. We saw it was kind of tough, kind of this familial, down-the-line favoritism blessing. But in a sense, I feel like this is perhaps the real blessing that would have come either way on Jacob's life. Despite all the conniving, all the heel-catching, the deceiving, and the scheming, here's the true blessing at the end of it. The blessing of Abraham. Not Abraham's inheritance, so to speak, but his spiritual inheritance. The things that God would speak to Abraham would carry on down the line through Isaac and now through Jacob. That he would become, and God bless you, an assembly of peoples, organized, increased, that he wouldn't just be some family that moved somewhere 
and has some offspring and has a little inheritance, but that they would be a people group, that they would be a large people in a sense to be contended with. Also that they would inherit the land, that he would inherit the land as a stranger. We hear that, go, okay, yeah, he's going to sojourn and move there and he gets the land. And, but to really think about that, to really consider that here's this stranger and he inherits the land. It's not his. That's a big deal. Um, nowadays, you might be able to go buy a house and inherit some land somewhere because you put money down on it. Um, but people, didn't, I don't think they gave up their land so easily back in the day. We see how Abraham got that little burial plot for his wife, right? But here, he's being told he's going to inherit something that has nothing to do with his family pedigree, his personal wealth, or his influence. It's not going to be given to him when he shows up in the land. Oh, Jacob, welcome. Here's the land that God promised you. No. He's a complete stranger there. And yet this land that he, and others wise, has no business being there, has no family there, has no plot of land there, has no claim to fame, and yet he's going to inherit it as if it's already his. Because it is already his by the promise of God. And I believe this to be part of a sign of God's blessing in his life, but really something that we can extrapolate into our lives, namely with salvation. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 and verse 19 says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That God is using this picture here, not only of how he made Israel the people and how he brought them into the fold, but that the whole point here is that, again, this is even a bigger picture of how all peoples through Jesus can have an inheritance in Christ, can be brought into the family and the household of God when once we are foreigners and strangers. Remember the Passover feast, one of God's commandments was, hey, if there's someone with you and they want to be a part of the house of God and they want to technically become Jewish, they can become Jewish. And that's what he's saying here. You had no inheritance here. You were never Jewish. And uh, Jacob, you were never a part of this land, but you're going to inherit it. Second part we see is God's favor in our lives. God's favor is a sign of his blessing in the sense that we begin to inherit things that weren't ours by any other merit. We think of Joseph. He didn't do anything special, but he had this favor of his dad on his life. He began the coat of many colors. God gave him dreams about what would happen in his life, how his family would bow down to him. And through the course of his life, as we'll get to it one day in Genesis, he inherits all of Egypt. There's only one man more powerful than him in all of Egypt. And that's Pharaoh. And who's this boy Joseph? Just some Israelite, so to speak, before there was Israel. And he's second in command. That's God's favor. And why? Because Joseph loved God and paid attention to when God was speaking to him and wanted to do the right thing. And with that, we see that there's also vast and amazing promises that are ours freely to receive. When we read the scripture, we can be assured that it is for us. Because God gave it to us. It's written down. It's not written down here to make us feel inferior. 
to make us feel like we're unworthy. I mean, in a sense, like kind of the law is meant for that to drive us to Jesus. But when we read the Bible, we oftentimes think, oh, it's not for me. God doesn't love me like he loves Abraham or Jacob. And I think if we look a little bit closer at the lives of these people, Genesis, God and man, we'll see these people are no better than us, the same as us. And God had these great and wonderful promises for them. And God gave you and I the whole Bible. Well, it's for you and I. You know, you may never be the second command in Egypt, but perhaps you're the one that God's going to use to save your family. And that's the promise. But you're a stranger now, Jacob. But know that God already gave this land to Abraham. You're going there. You don't know what's ahead of you. You've got nothing with you. But you're going to inherit it. Because God already promised it to your grandfather, Abraham. And with that, Isaac sends Jacob away. And I think about this familial deal of having to send people away. Where Abraham had to send Hagar away. And the flesh must go away to be transformed. The flesh must go away and be transformed for it to inherit spiritual things. We cannot inherit the blessings of God. The scripture says, Do not be deceived, brethren. Those who practice such things have no part of the kingdom of God. They have no inheritance. I don't know, maybe you're saved and you're, you're living like the world. And I can't make the distinction there. You know, God knows whether you really love him or are saved by him or not. But you're not going to have any inheritance when you get to heaven. At the very least, you're going to squander it all with this living. I mean, at the very most, and at the very least, you're showing that you're not saved at all. And that you, you have no inheritance there because you have no part in the kingdom of God. Don't walk that line. But the flesh must go away. Abraham had to leave his home country. Jesus, if we remember, was tempted in the wilderness right after being revealed as the Son of God and the Holy Spirit comes down on him after baptism. He goes in the wilderness and he's tempted in the flesh. And he succeeds because he's the Son of God. He is the Word of God and he relies on the Word of God. Paul had to go to the desert. See in Galatians 1, 11 through 19, he says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Basically the whole New Testament. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, and I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus, basically the wilderness, the place near where he grew up. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him for 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. That even Paul had to go out into this wilderness, had to get away and God would reconcile all these things that he learned, that he thought he knew about the scriptures, and that through Jesus Christ, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, the scriptures would take on the real meaning to him. There were no longer this law and rules to follow and self-righteousness, but really the grander picture that we see in the New Testament was evident. And Charles Stanley says in The Road of Discipleship, uh, quote that 
I was looking, I came across while looking something up last night. But Paul knew the scripture thoroughly. But the truth that Jesus was the promised Messiah made him reconsider the foundation he'd been trusting. Everything he knew about God had to be reevaluated in light of this new information. And that's true with us. We need to let God do things in our life that allow us to reevaluate what the scripture really says about him and who he really is. Not to the point that we make up our own doctrine, but that we really get to a point where, man, am I living a life that really is what the scripture says? Am I believing in a God of my own making? Or am I believing in the God of who the scripture reveals through Jesus Christ? Because the deep things of God can only be learned from God himself. Humans can be great instructors. I'm pretty mediocre, but prayerfully through me and through others, God will speak to you. Maybe my words, but hopefully in your heart, you'll sense God speaking to you. Because the greatest and truest teacher is the Holy Spirit by the word of God. You know, a lot of people can teach us things in life. I remember trying to learn geometry and it just wasn't happening. Uh, I, I get basic geometry, but in school it wasn't happening. I, I understand a little bit of algebra and I was getting along a little bit in calculus. But geometry and trigonometry just didn't click for me. And no matter how hard my teacher would try to teach me and do, probably do a good job at it, it just wasn't clicking for me. And uh, plenty of other concepts in life like that. It just People can teach you, but it, it has to really click with you to get it. You know, we can learn a lot of things rote in life. But until we actually learn it for ourselves, we don't truly understand it. We're not really an expert in it. I think that that's the difference between an expert and amateur. An expert knows it intrinsically, while an amateur just kind of knows the surface value of it, or even just the how to how to do it, A, B, C. First John 2.27 says, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. You know, the greatest lie in history is that you need someone else to teach you, someone other than Jesus, to show you the things of God. Now, that's true that we need other teachers. It's true that we need examples. But he is the only one who can save us. He's the only one who can speak to us the scriptures. We look at the Pharisees. We look at uh, the Catholic Church in history. Oh no, this is not for you, the normal people. It's just for the priesthood. It's in Latin. You guys can't understand it. Only we can understand it. Only we can interpret it. And we see how much that got off base. 1 Timothy 2, 5-7 through 7 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Again, all these other earthly relationships are important, but we see in the scripture that in heaven, there's no more need. No one needs to tell his brother, know the Lord, for we're all going to know him as we're known. The greatest teacher in life is God, because he's the only one who can truly teach you anything spiritual, anything deep down. The only one who can directly get to your heart and that's jesus no one else can touch it no one else can live inside you no one else knows your thoughts and the intents of your heart we see here as jacob's told to go out he's told to go to a place called padam aram and that just means a field it's this region of syria he's told to go back up north northeast 
travel far away from where he is and find a wife from his family. He's got family there. And so Jacob obeys his father and mother and goes. But Jacob obeys his father and mother and he goes. You know, he had little motive, some incentive, obviously with his brother wanting to murder him. That's sort of a good reason to get up and go. Uh, but in the end, he did the right thing. He listens to his mom and dad and he goes there to find a wife. He doesn't try to hide anywhere else. But we see that this rivalry is so deeply rooted that even through all of this, that his brother Esau tries to compete and obey his parents now, or at least Isaac. Uh, uh, he doesn't say that he cares about what Rebecca thinks. I think he knows what happens here, but he cares about what his dad thinks about his wives. Um, he's finally getting it that these fleshly women that he brought home from the pagan lands are not pleasing to them. But what does he do? He takes another wife. That seems like the right thing to do. Esau, that's a great job there. No, it's not the right thing to do, Esau. It's too late. You took wives already, bud. Two wrongs don't make a right. It's a worldly saying, but it's true. Because we can't cover up a fleshly mistake with another fleshly effort. People try and fix their marriages this way. They try and make things right at work or in life to patch things up with more fleshly effort. And yeah, if you've done something wrong, you need to sort of make reparations in a way. You need to prove yourself faithful again. I, I get that in a sense. But it will never undo what was done. And there will always be this constant effort of upkeep. And when you fail that upkeep, when you fail on that second fleshly effort, which you will at some point, because we all do, we're not perfect, you're back to square one again. If you're relying on that second fleshly effort to cover up that first fleshly effort and make up for it, it's never going to be fixed. It's always going to be this stress and this worry and this shaky ground. But the Holy Spirit can overrule our fleshly mistakes. He can put new life in our bad decisions. Not that we continue in a bad decision, so to speak, and continue in a simple lifestyle, but if you've married someone, he could put new life in that. Even if you got married for the wrong reasons, he can now make it the right relationship. Not by marrying someone else. Not by divorcing this person if they're content to live with you. But where does Esau think the best place to find another wife is? He goes to the family of Ishmael. He goes to the family? Okay. That's kind of what mom wanted, right? Maybe if I go to the family instead of the pagans. But he goes to the family of the flesh. He goes to Ishmael. And you can always try and imitate the will of God and the spirit of God in life. By doing things in the family of God or doing things that are kind of close to what the Bible says. Oh, well, we're living together, but we're not sleeping together. Ah, I doubt that. But even if you are, it looks evil. What are, what are other people going to think? You look up the laws on marriage and things and relationships and a lot of the legal laws talk about cohabitation being the same thing. Let's take it to the spiritual. Maybe it's feeding the poor or loving your neighbor. The world is full of these seemingly good pursuits, so-called social justice. But unless it's built on the gospel, unless it's the actual word of God and by his spirit, it's shifting sand. Because feeding those poor becomes enabling them. Or even worse, enslaving them to your system of handouts. Loving your neighbor becomes 
tolerating their sin until they have no need for the gospel and you have no grounds to share it. Now, caring for the planet, we are supposed to take care of the animals and the planet in some sense. We were caretakers of this world, but it, end up, it ends up becoming this religion that ends up sacrificing human life. Reaching across the aisle politically or at work or in a relationship, all of a sudden becomes being on the other side of the aisle. You've not pulled them over to your side, you've gone over to their side. Compromise is dangerous. Because you cannot conjure up the Spirit of God. We see that in the Scriptures. And we can't do that with fleshly motives. Our fleshly efforts cannot make the Spirit of God show up. We can dance around and be all emotional, but it doesn't mean the Spirit of God is there. But if the Spirit of God is there, we may dance around and get all emotional. But it's got to come from heaven down. It can't come from earth up. When God lit the fires of the altar, they prepared the place, but... He didn't have to cut himself. He just prayed and God brought that fire down. And that fire was bigger than anything else that they had made. John 3, 8. The wind, Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. That God is going to lead you and take you and move you and do different things in your life. And you may not know what's coming around the corner. You can barely tell where you come from or where you're going. But it's by the Spirit of God. And, and I, I wonder sometimes about Christians or churches who have five-year, ten-year plans or these goals to reach a certain number of people. Are you just trying to conjure up the Spirit of God? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I, just, I, I know God leads me to plan and purpose and to do things and to pray about things and to prepare things. And maybe I've got it wrong. But I sense more freedom in that and more onus on God to take care of it and God to bring the people and God to fill the need than for me to do it in my fleshly upkeep. Because if you start out in the flesh, you're going to continue in the flesh. Like Paul says in Galatians, you begin in the spirit. Why are you now relying on the flesh? Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And we must let God decipher our motives in these things. It may be a noble pursuit to go feed the poor, but make sure that it's God leading you to do it. Obviously, that's an instruction in the scripture, and we should seek to do these things that are obvious, but in the way we carry it out, and the way we are personally involved, it needs to be led by the Spirit. Otherwise, it's going to be in vain at some point. Because God will decipher those motives. He will show us if our desires are correct. He'll show us when and where and how to do it and the right way to do it. Because often in life, there's a third way. We tend to put things in column A or column B, but it's usually a column C we never thought of. And that's the answer that God has for us. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And when we get into God's word, God will begin to show us, you know, that's a great idea, but that's not what I have planned for you to do. But that's a great idea, but you should carry it out this way instead of that way. And the third way is always restful, is always a restful way by the Spirit. Where the first and second ways are full of effort, strife, and fleshly motive and efforts, 
and tends to be cutting off of others instead of ourselves. The third way I think Esau would have been to have led these wives that he had already to the Lord, would have been to the leader in the house and to begin to have a holy relationship with them, not try and go out and find someone else and bring someone else into this mess. But let's go on, verse 10. It says, Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And so he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and his top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. Also your descendants shall be uh, as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. We'll stop there for now. See that Jacob heads, heads out to the north, I believe. And he came to this place. Why? Because it was on his GPS? Because it was where he had planned to stay tonight? No, but this is where he ended up simply because the sun had set. The sun had gone down. It was time to, to uh, settle in and find a place to sleep. And have you ever ended up somewhere just because that's as far as you made it in life? Maybe you're in a job and you're just there and you don't know how you ended up there, but that's where you are. Believe me, God can make the most of that. But when we were moving out here, uh, we were having some car issues with the heat driving through uh, Wyoming. And we were really struggling to make it and really praying and the stress was coming on. And I was just really worn out. And we finally made it to this place called Buffalo, Wyoming. And in order for us to get to Buffalo to Billings, we had to go up over this huge mountain. The truck was barely driving on flat ground. It was just uh, I think it just had a ton of heat soak and the diff and the trans and everything. Um, so we ate at this pizza hut and I remember just being so tired. We found this hotel and I slept for a few hours and we got some rest and got out of the car and we just prayed and um, we got up in the middle of the night and we left and God got us over the mountain. Thankfully it was nice and cool that night and there was some rain which helped keep the truck cool. Um, we were able to get up and over the mountain and pull the hole. I think I can, I think I can get up over there. Um, but we were just there. We didn't plan on staying in Buffalo. We planned on making it all the way to Billings that day. But we are in Buffalo that night because the sun was setting, so to speak. And that's where Jacob was. And he pulled a stone over and he puts his head down on it. And that's his pillow for the night. He came to this hard place, not very comfortable. And that's where he slept. This guy came from a nomadic lineage. People lived in tents. And yet, here he is, outside, sleeping on a rock. doesn't really make sense. His people kind of know how to travel. They know how to lay down. They know how to have a tent. And I think this shows us that he had the blessing in his life. His dad blessed him twice, but his life was empty. There was no plan ahead. There was no caravan. There was no holiday in and sweets. His mom, again, thought he was just going for a couple days. But Jacob was now out on his own. He was no longer in that tent with his mom. He was out sleeping on a rock. 
I think his brother Esau may have put together a little more of an accommodation, maybe a lean-to or something, being a hunter, being a guy who's probably caught outside at sunset a lot and had to uh, make a little makeshift shelter, but not this guy. And sometimes I see people unprepared for situations in life, and it's a little bit uncanny. Uh, not knowing, driving across country, but not knowing how to change a tire or not getting your oil changed or things of this nature. And I think back to previous times in my life when I was stuck out in the cold. You know, I learned how to do a lot of things I know how to do because there were times when I got in trouble and didn't know how to do it. And I had to learn it. Think about when I changed my first uh, flat tire um, at 12 years old. Uh, you know, there's times I was out without a job or without money in the bank or without figuring out how much money I owe every month and overspending. But I'm sure there's still parts of my life that are exposed. I need to get up off the rock and build a little shelter for my loved ones. By God's grace, I'll do that. But as Jacob was out here exposed and laying down on this rock, he dreamed. And this dude must have been tired. <laughs> he must have been walking all day to fall asleep on a rock like this and dream. And again, I think that that's God letting him sleep and giving him rest. Because God gives him this vision of a ladder set up on the earth, this ladder, staircase, uh, stairway to heaven, that old song. Uh, but just picture this. You have the earth. There's a ladder set up on it, a giant stairway going from the surface of the earth up into the heavens. It's pretty epic to use that word. There are angels of God going up and down on it, climbing up, climbing down, going to heaven, coming back down to heaven. This is not a space elevator like they want to do. This is the third heaven. This is the spiritual dimension. They were going from earth going to heaven and coming back. God had begun to open his eyes in the stream and show him a reality of what was happening in this place. If we remember the Tower of Babel, what were they doing? They were trying to build their own gateway to heaven. If you were a kid of the 90s like myself, you'll remember this Heaven's Gate cult where they thought that there was this UFO behind a comet and they all committed suicide to try and get there as a gateway to heaven. That that was the way to get up there, this ladder that they had to climb. But we see here in this vision this dream of this ladder of this stairway from earth to heaven where the angels are going up and on up and down that must have been crazy to look at it must have been beautiful must have been bright especially if you think about it being nighttime and this giant ladder but the lord stood above it the top of this ladder was the lord in john 3 13 through 15 it says no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven that is the son of man who is in heaven as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This verse about God being the one who ascends and descends is the one we talk about being salvation open to everyone by just by believing. And where else do we see God standing in heaven in the scripture? In Acts 7, with Stephen's death. Just an interesting side note there. God tells Jacob who he is. He's the God of Abraham, your grandfather, and Isaac, your father. And one day the saying will be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God let this man's trip fall short here as an opportunity to speak to him, to show him something very deep, very true. I remember that coming over the mountain that night after, in the middle of the night after Buffalo, Wyoming, and God speaking to me and comforting me and showing me things that I might not have heard otherwise. might have been too stressed out about to, uh, to have that going on. The kids would have been up. My wife would have been up. 
But I had t- that quiet time in the car when all I could do is just have a little quiet worship song on and try and trust and spend time with God because I, not because I'm spiritual, but because I needed to, because I didn't know if we were going to make it or not. But God tells him here, and he allows this weariness and emptiness in the wilderness to be a place of filling for him and a foretelling. He says, every direction you're going to spread out here. Your descendants will be like dust of the earth. Not only are you going to find a wife, but you're going to have tons of kids, and they're going to have tons of kids, and so on and so on, until your people fill this land. And there's also a messianic prophecy, the seed, that the whole world will be blessed through the people that would come from him. That is this, this inheritance was for him and for the nation to come specifically, but it was always to bless everyone of every people group. That this physical location was a blessing, that the familial blessing was personally to them, that God might reach every family, every person, and every location throughout all of time. That God's angels would be going up and down throughout all of time, and that this was just a part of that plan to reach everyone. Genesis 28, 15. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And when God spoke to him, he reminded him of the blessing. But it wasn't some generic blessing for him. It was extremely personal. I believe that God wants for you and I to speak to us through these scriptures that were perhaps to other people in a different time, but they were preserved for us that when we spend time with them, God might use them to personally bless us, to speak to us in our heart and our spirit. That this guy, to a guy leaving his country all alone, whose parents had kicked him out, whose brother wants him dead, who's in a midlife crisis and finds himself broke, sleeping on a rock, in a place that's only as far as he could make it that day. God tells him, I will not leave you nor forsake you. I remember in a time in my life having my head on a rock, so to speak, and God making that promise more real to me than I'd ever known. And God tells him and promises him really that I will bring you back. You're going through this land and you're going away up to Syria, but I'm going to bring you back. Don't you worry. Don't you worry, Jacob. You're not leaving forever. I know it feels like it. I know you don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to bring you back. And that God will be the one who does all they promise. You don't have to connive anymore. You don't have to be in the flesh anymore, Jacob. I'm going to take care of it. And all of this, and through all of this, the past, present, and future, God was saying, and God was showing him through this dream, that God alone stood above it all. That God was the one who was in charge. And God was the one looking down on Jacob this night. Verse 16. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the very gate of heaven. And Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and set it up as a pillar. And he poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, or the house of God. For the name of that city had previously been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, these are obviously concerns of his, so that I came back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you.
I believe that this was a real look into the spiritual world. This wasn't just a dream. God wouldn't make a dream that's deceiving. God would give us a revelation of truth in his dream. And God likes to use sleep, rest, and dreams as avenues to speak into our lives. We have the whole written word of God, but Jacob didn't have that. So God uses this dream. Look at Adam and Eve. God put Adam to sleep. He woke him up and there was Eve. Abraham was told to make a sacrifice and he falls asleep. And while he falls asleep, God goes in and does all the work. We see here Jacob's dream. We see Peter dozing before lunch and acts on the rooftop. And God gives him that vision about reaching all the Gentiles. They're not unclean. We see John praying and resting on the Lord's day on the island of Patmos. And God brings him to heaven and gives him that revelation. And Jacob says, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. The word yada there, I don't remember Seinfeld, yada, yada, yada. But it means to know, to perceive, to make known. Man, I had no idea God was here. I was tired. The sun was going down. Ah, that rock will do. Pulls it over, lays down, goes to sleep. Has this amazing, intense dream. God was there. God made it clear to him that he was there, even though it didn't look like it. And how often do we think that God isn't there? We're sleeping on a rock. We're sleeping. You know, as kids say, don't be sleeping. But in fact, he is right there. And he's doing amazing things that are just beyond our vision. This dream was revealing the spiritual reality to Jacob that he couldn't see in the daytime. He had no idea, not even a clue. You know, science isn't going to get us into the spiritual. There's, there's true science and then there's religious science. And the true science always reveals the things of God, you know, than the physical. But it can never explain the spiritual. The spiritual is always more powerful than it. And I think Jesus knew something a little bit about laying his head on a stone. As he says in Luke 9, 58, the foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, right? Jesus knew what it was like to be like Jacob. And Jesus' earthly life would experience all that Jacob was experiencing in a way. The very the very culmination of the cross, but also in times like this, being alone, not having a place to lay down. And I think that that's always a comfort when we are in hard places, we can rest on the fact that, man, God knows this. God knows what this is like. But he says, how awesome is this place? I think of the transfiguration. They want to build the tents and live there. But he's kind of scared. I'd be kind of scared too. You have this crazy dream out of nowhere, and you know it's not just a dream. I kind of want to get going. <laughs> I think sometimes it's why people split from church so quickly because they get this revelation of God and it scares them, convicts them, and they don't realize what it is. But he says, this is none other than the house of God, Bethel. This is none other than the gate of heaven. At this physical place, there's something spiritual, powerful, amazing happening here. You know, Jesus said that you no longer need to go to Jerusalem or a temple to worship, but you can worship in spirit and truth. You know, you don't need to go to a physical place to worship, but this physical place had some amazing piece of worship going on, that the angels were coming from the very presence of God and down to earth to do their work. And I won't go off on a tangent about UFOs and things people believe today, but if there's any truth to those stories that they have, it is spiritual. It's not aliens from another world. It is a spiritual thing. And physical places, I believe, have spiritual connections. 
that there is this connection between the heavenly dimension and the earthly dimension, and it happens here on earth. Revelation 2.13 talks about things like the, of this nature, that this, there is a throne of Satan on earth. You know, the king is going to have his throne somewhere, and I don't want it to be in my house. So I pray that God would always fill our house with angels and a spirit and drive the enemy out and keep peace there. So yes, don't go everywhere you don't have to. There's not always a need to visit those spiritual shrines, the false gods. Yes, God is bigger, and you could theoretically go there, and nothing good happened. God's in you, and if you're a mature believer, you realize that these gods are nothing but just metal and wood, and there's nothing to them. But seriously, I don't know that you should have anything to do with it. Even if the architecture is something to behold, you've got better things to do with your life, Christian, than to go admire a temple to an idol. Uh, but it's such an amazing revelation here. But we see that Jacob yet still doesn't have that personal relationship with God. He has this revelation. He knows who God is. God speaks to him personally, gives him these promises. But he doesn't have that deep relationship with him yet. Because obviously his actions in the previous chapters show that. But what he says here too is that he makes this vow with this altar. Uh, he's like, all right, well, God said this to me. But if I go away and I come back and prove all, God proves himself true to me, well, then I'll make him my God. You know, he makes this altar and pours oil on it, symbolic of the Holy Spirit and this revelation that he had there, uh, this blessing and this touch that was there. But he tries to make a deal with God. You know, this Abrahamic deal they have going on. And again, not that God is against trying to work it out with man. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow, the scripture says. But Jacob doesn't believe God's promise. If some, In some sense, I think Jacob thinks God is a deceiver, that he's going to say something and not do it. Maybe he doesn't, wouldn't outwardly say that, but his actions show that deep down that's kind of what he believes. If God will be with me, Jacob, God said he'd be with you. What God says he does, he is truth. He's not going to turn back on that. Do you somehow doubt this vision, this dream that God gave you? You know it's real. You know it's the truth. You know that's God speaking to you. But don't we do that too? We tend to put our own shortcomings, our own failures, our own sinful ways and project them on God. Jacob was not someone to be trusted. Jacob lied. Jacob, his own name is deceiver. He wasn't a man of his word in his way. He would use his words to deceive others. He just got done deceiving his dad saying, God, God gave me this blessing, dad. Just to get what he wanted. Perhaps he feared God would be the same. That his own flesh, his own sin, his own corruptness clouded his vision of God. When God clearly showed up to him, clearly gave him a promise and a word that he could trust on, he didn't yet trust it. And we tend to think God is like us and make him in our own image. If God is loving, why would he do that? Well, are you more loving than God? Do you somehow have a greater understanding of God that you can make a judgment call on that? Okay, well, let's look at the scripture together. Let's see, well, what is the real cause of all sin and suffering? Is it God? No, it's our sin. And did God make a way for that? Does God catch every tear in a bottle? Will God bring judgment at the end day with blood as high as the horse's bridle? Absolutely. So he allows it because he loves us, but he doesn't love the suffering and, and he took it for us. 
and he'll make an end for it one day. And he's got a purpose for it one day that all might come to him, the sufferer and those inflicting that suffering. Because we're at the bottom of that ladder looking up. But you know what? God is at the top of the ladder and he sees everything. We haven't even climbed a rung. We probably couldn't even climb a rung if we tried. And he's worried about bread to eat and clothing. I think it's interesting he's in this area and I have to wonder, uh, you know, wasn't Jesus thinking about things like this um, when he gave that message in Matthew 6 about not to worry about what you eat or what you'll wear? He says that I may come back to my father's house in peace. You know, Jacob longed to return. He never wanted to leave and he wants peace. Even if it's only for selfish reasons that he can go home. But he desires peace and God knows that and God says, I'll bring you back to your father's house in peace. But even then, how could you not want peace with your twin brother? This is a shared womb with him. You guys fought all the time, but sincerely, deep down, he's your brother. And I always implore my kids to forgive their siblings throughout their lives. When they grow up, I want them to forgive each other. There's parts of my family history that, man, the family's just split. I don't know some of my family because it's just split, because there's unforgiveness. And maybe there needs to be amends made, but man, I, I don't want my kids to be that way. I want to end all that and, and get through all that and as much as we can. And obviously, you know, sometimes there's hurts and things that happen that you just can't do anything about, and there has to be. And man, as much as possible with us, especially with my kids, I want them to always love each other and always forgive each other. But he set the stone. It must be something obvious to him. You and I might walk by and not pick out the stone among the others, but as he walks by, he'll remember the stone. It's in a special place. He'd pass by it and remember it. And he said he'd worship there with a tithe. That he'd worship there with a tithe. And again, we see tithing is something people understood and practiced before the law. Abraham tithed. It's not the law that requires us to tithe. It's an act of worship. Man, when you realize that God is the one giving you things in life, when we recognize that, how could you not? It's not a big deal. And God always provides more than whatever you tithe. You know, we just got a really good deal on some furniture for the house at Habitat that was brand new and <laughs> I didn't have to spend money on it. But sometimes we don't see that what we have already is a blessing because we didn't pray for it beforehand. We didn't seek the answer or the provision before we acquired that when we come back and look at it, it's just a stone like any other. But man, when we pray about something and God providing something, you know, like your car. I know that God provided that for us because we were praying about it. and I didn't, It's just a gift. That's part of why I don't want to get rid of it and keep giving life to it because I know that it's something that I couldn't acquire in my own strength. But God can turn any stone into bread. That's what Satan tempts Jesus with in Matthew 4, 3 in the wilderness. But of course, God can do whatever he wants. If God's hungry, God can go, oh, here's a Big Mac. Oh, here's a Wagyu steak. He can make whatever he wants. But he didn't. He trusted on the word of God. God can turn any stone into a son of Abraham, Matthew 3, 9 says. The Pharisees are so proud of their pedigree and who they were. Jesus says, God doesn't need you. He could, if he wants to make new children, he'll take that stone and turn them into somebody. It's not like us, that God can, doesn't need you and me, but he wants you and I. And man, the pride comes before the fall. We need to worry. We need to worry in a sense. Man, God doesn't need me. I'm nothing special in that sense. That God can't do it if it's not through me. And I think that that's a huge problem in 
the church today that we think that God can only use one church or one movement. God's bigger than us, guys. Luke 19, 40-42 says, But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And Jesus was weeping that the people did not see him and realize what was going on. He says that, man, the stones are going to cry out. And this stone would cry out to Jacob and remind him as he passed back that, I'm going this way, but if God's real and he does bring me back this way, I'll begin to worship him when I get back to this point of no return. And God wants our spiritual eyes to be open, to see that he's above it all, to hear that he's promising good for us, to always be with us, now, forever, and for really for us to believe him at his word, not to have to test him, but when God promises, take him from that point. Carry that promise with you as you have to walk away and come back. Trust in that then. Don't wait until the time that you come back. Trust in him from the moment he speaks to you. Don't waste years testing him because it'll always come true. The only one that gets tested when we test God is us. The only one that gets proved wrong is us. So trust him at the first because he is patient, he is kind, and he will wait for us. God will be there when Jacob's ready, but God's ready now for a relationship with him. God's ready now for Jacob to trust in him. Don't let it be too late. Accept him. Believe him. Listen to him. 2 Corinthians 6.2 For he says, In an acceptable time, I have heard you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. God, we pray for those who don't know you yet, that as you speak to them, they would receive to you and turn to you as you're ministering to them as they lay their heads on a rock. May they trust you now and not put you to the test. If they do, I know that you'll show them how true and good you are, but God, let them not have to go through any more of suffering without you being their personal God. Those in our family, those are our friends, those are people we work with. God, let them come to you. God, let us trust you when you speak to us. God, let us look to the things that you've shown us and given us as just daily reminders, little altars to how great you are. We love you, Lord. Thank you for all you're doing and all you are. And we pray you come back soon. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.